Hello, and here we are, Feast of Trumpets 2000. This is, to me, almost unbelievable. I remember sitting in the living room listening to my uncle in about 1952 when I was only a child of seven, talking about wild dogs in Georgia, talking about drought in various parts of the country. And we hoped that these were the forerunners and the beginning of perhaps the Great Tribulation and the return of Christ shortly thereafter. How would we have ever believed that by now, the year 2000, we would not be enjoying eternal life in the kingdom of God? Had anyone told me that in 1966 as a senior in Ambassador College, I wouldn't have believed it. They told it to me in 1972 that it would come by 75. And it's hard to believe that we came through 82 when some thought that this would all begin to happen, the death of Herbert Armstrong in 86, <clears throat> and now 14 years later, here we are, still human, very human, and fighting our human nature and hoping that Christ's return is fairly imminent. We know it's at least three and a half years away and probably quite a bit more than that, but we don't know how much. But here we are, still waiting. He who endures to the end shall be saved. You might recall, just before Herbert Armstrong died, he told Joe DeKotch, his work was finished. Now get the church ready. Ready for what? Ready for what this day pictures. The first fruits being resurrected to life, the bride of Christ clothed in righteousness and prepared to marry her husband upon his return. <clears throat> Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4 and begin in verse 16 and rehearse a few scriptures here about this day. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. When Paul wrote this, he still thought it was going to happen in his lifetime. Had anyone at that point told him it was still well over 1900 years away, he would have disbelieved too. <clears throat> but by the time he reached the end of his life, he knew there was quite a bit of time left. Now to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. And I want to read beginning in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, <clears throat> Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. We know from other verses that he is the first of the firstfruits, that the firstfruits themselves equal 144,000. This you can read in Revelation 14.4, where he is discussing the 144,000 and said, These are the firstfruits. Nothing more, nothing less. These are. People have tried to say there will be more than that in the first resurrection, but if the first fruits is all that are in that resurrection, I don't see how you get around Revelation 14.4 to say there are more than that. Now, Herbert Armstrong was correct in his focus. Though most ministers did not believe him or confer with Scripture on any changes God might want, but went on preaching to the world, and the church, the bride, is still a mess. Not much has happened as a result of their efforts to go to the world, but Herbert Armstrong clearly said, that work was finished, get the church ready. 
Most have ignored this. <clears throat> the main job now is preparing people to be the bride of Christ, to finish the growth and the preparation and the ripening of the first fruits. Many were called unto Herbert Armstrong. <clears throat> Few are now being chosen from that, that number. More are not being called, except a very, very few, it seems. Maybe some at the eleventh hour. Another analogy we might use is that we are to prepare the living stones for the latter temple, the final one before the return of Christ. Now, from the death of Herbert Armstrong, we have had an interim period with no overall leadership, as we've read in Micah 4, that our king has perished, or our counselor is dead. And in Isaiah 51, it is very clear that there would be no one during this period of time in which we would have an overall leadership <coughs> from God, that every man would be doing that which was right in his own eyes, doing his own thing, but the church as a whole would not have leadership. Now, the two witnesses fit right in with Herbert Armstrong's instruction. He said the gospel message to the world was finished, his job was done, it was time to get the church ready. And those of you who follow the Minor Prophet series <coughs> have seen in Haggai and Zechariah that Joshua and Zerubbabel there are the two anointed ones, the olive trees of Revelation 11. They are the two candlesticks who pour oil out of themselves to all seven churches. So they are given overall leadership of the church at the end before they even begin to go to the world. And that's what the story of Haggai and Zechariah are all about. And we have rehearsed also in Revelation 11 that they are not to go to the world. They are to leave the Gentiles without and measure the altar, that is the ministry, and the membership of the church, and they are instructed to build another temple in the book of Haggai. Since this is the next job after the period of non-leadership, it would seem we should be turning our attention to getting in line with the next job on the horizon, building the latter temple. But before going further with this, why are we here? Of all the potential first fruits in many organizations, why are we forming yet another congregation of people? Another separate group? Why is this message going to a newly formed audience instead of each one of us still being a part of whatever organization we came from? What brought us together? I see two major reasons. <clears throat> a, the calendar. Most of you who are hearing this tape initially had studied it ahead of time and saw a need to change, but did not have So you left, whatever group you were in, and some of you were just sort of flopping about, not knowing what to do. <clears throat> B, the Minor Prophets series. You heard it and began to catch the vision of what God is going to do with the church, that he will draw a remnant together to form the latter and last temple culminating in the return of Christ. Basically, these two issues brought us together from at least six different organizations and some independents. Now, since this is our first formal service, perhaps it is good to ask, how did it happen? I'll give you a brief history. It has to be brief because we're very new. When I realized I had to leave CGG in order to keep the Holy Days on the correct days, I knew of very few who even agreed on this subject. I resolved very early that I'd go as quietly as possible, not writing letters to persuade that this is the only righteous way to go in the latest split, 
as many have done. Usually there is an argument about who's right and who's wrong and those other guys are bad and we're good <clears throat> and on and on it goes with letters to all the brethren and so on and so forth. But I did not want to do that. I still have respect for the organization I came out of and basically essentially just, just disagree on the calendar itself. Now though a few asked, I determined not to even supply sermon tapes at least until the Feast of Tabernacles except possibly Trumpets and Atonement which we ultimately decided to do. The primary reason for this is that I did not want to immediately start another organization that might have to be torn down as per Isaiah 5 and Zechariah 11, etc., etc. Was God doing something, or was this just Daryl Henson's agenda? By providing a minimum of services, not proselyting, not contacting anyone who did not first contact me, I wanted to see if a group would come together without any impetus from me, without any overt actions to try to get a following or have people come. People began calling and emailing me from all over the country. Most of them I had never even heard of. This really only began after Passover and mostly since the middle of July when I resigned from CGG. Now remarkably, at least to me, this has produced about 65 to 80 people preparing to keep the feast in Zion with us. Africa may be another 25 to 35, but these I knew ahead of time from being there for the feast the last three years, and they came on their own because I also did not want to proselyte from CGG and try to pull them away from there, just answer those who contacted me. These are not big numbers in terms of the overall church and certainly will not impress anyone from that standpoint. But to me, they came from out of nowhere, and that is remarkable in itself. <clears throat> For who am I? Just a former Worldwide Church of God church pastor, nobody with a big name or office, either there or in CGG either. What did people respond to? They responded to a biblical message and a return to the reality of, he- reality of the heavens and the calendar. Now I want, I want you to see some more of my mindset. As people began to send in tithes and offerings, I further determined not to take any out for salary or personal use, and have not done so to date, until I was confident God was working something here. These funds would be first used for any expenses needed to get us off the ground as a con- congregation. After some talk with some of the people who had responded, we determined to have our first service on trumpets, since the day would be different than the calculated Hebrew calendar in most of the Church of God's daughters, and the same for atonement. Our first physical gathering together will take place at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what are our goals? One primary goal was to establish the holy days on the set times of God. We also determined that this would not be a calendar church of God, but that the overriding emphasis would continue to be preparing the bride or first fruits. Our relationship with God would be the key factor. Criticism and enemies have already surfaced. Some think we are completely nuts and have said so, and this was to be anticipated. Had a group not begun to come together, it was a matter of conscience with me, I would simply have gone and kept the feast by myself on the correct days 
and I had to. But a group has come together, and I guess we're all included as nuts. Now, I wanted to explain this brief history, because we're now going to the book of Ezra, which has much to do with the Feast of Trumpets and the purposes that we have seen for ourselves. And there is a remarkable pattern here, which with the background just given, uh, maybe we can all identify somewhat. Now, I am not saying right off the bat that we are the latter temple. I am saying we are volunteering to help. There may be others out there somewhere who are seeing the same things we are. Maybe the leadership ultimately for the latter temple will come from somewhere else and we'll need to be joined together with them. But the key is we know this is the next thing God is going to do according to Scripture and we want to be prepared to help and to be a part of it if God so chooses to allow us that luxury. Now briefly on Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are historical accounts of Judah coming out of Babylonian captivity and rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and Jerusalem's walls. By contrast, Haggai and Zechariah tell a similar story based on the same historical references, but there is a great difference. Ezra and Nehemiah give a historical pattern of events. God then caused Haggai and Zechariah to be written and included in a prophetic series of books, the Minor Prophets. They aren't included in the writings with Ezra and Nehemiah right after or right before as part of that whole story. They're end-time books, and they relate specific prophecies of the church at the end of this age. The specific events follow the pattern of the historical events of Ezra and Nehemiah. There will be some differences, and those differences are spelled out in Haggai and Zechariah, but the overall pattern is the same. Ezra and Nehemiah were written over a period of many, many years, and, and Israel's history and Judah's history were played out over hundreds of years. The end time is much more uh, collapsed than that, covering a much shorter period of time, it appears at least to us. And these events may happen in a lot shorter order, one right after another. So the pattern is the same, but the specific events laid out in Haggai and Zechariah uh, add more than what the historical record gives. So we need to understand that uh, distinction. Now, in Ezra, we see a prophetic 70 years of living in a captivity uh, under Babylon. And in the prophetic 70 years, we see the church raised up in the midst of a pagan Babylonian society under Herbert Armstrong, and we've been chained to that society ever since he came on the scene in the late 20s and early 30s. <clears throat> Considering this, I think it should be about over and our freedom provided from the system. So Ezra and Nehemiah recount the 70 years of Babylonian captivity in the past. Haggai and Zechariah prophesy a release from the one we are now in, including a gathering of the remnant under Zerubbabel and Joshua, followed by a warning to the world, a witness against the world, not a calling message as Herbert Armstrong had, but an in-your-face witness, followed by the end of the age and the resurrection of the first fruits. So now let's go on to Ezra to examine the historical pattern here and 
tie it together somewhat with Haggai and Zechariah, which are the prophetic specifics, not just the pattern. Now, Ezra was written, <clears throat> according to the commentaries, at least the first six chapters, between 538 and 516 B.C., a period of 23 years, and then there was a gap of, depending on who you talk to, 50 to 60 years before Ezra came uh, to Jerusalem himself. So what Ezra is recounting here is what happened with Zerubbabel and Joshua before he even arrived on the scene. So let's go to Ezra 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the mouth of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. Now this is the 70 years uh, prophesied by Jeremiah in chapter 25, verse 12, and 29, 10 of Jeremiah. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now why would a worldly king make this statement? Uh, the commentaries speculate that Daniel, having been a part of Nebuchadnezzar's rule, was also there as a leader in the government under the Persians. And Isaiah had written anywhere from 140 to 200 years before this, saying that Cyrus would issue the command to build the temple. Uh, this we can find if we go back to Isaiah 44, I believe it is. Isaiah 44, verse 28, yes. But says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45. Thus says the Lord, who is anointed to Cyrus. He had anointed, appointed uh, Cyrus to do this. 140 to 200 years before Cyrus was even on the scene. Whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, with the kingdoms under Cyrus, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, which called you by your name, and the God of Israel. So God is saying ahead of time, before Cyrus was even born, that these things would occur. He goes on to give him some warnings uh, that he had better do it. So the theory is that Daniel probably went to Cyrus and said, Cyrus, look, this was written, your name was given long before you were ever even born and before there ever was a Persian empire defeating the Babylonians, that you would be in this position, that God would give you these kingdoms, and that you would issue an order to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this would have been quite an ego trip for a king, that he had been named ahead of time. Not many of us, not many people in history could say that. So seeing that, how could he help but comply? It was just a boost to his ego. It makes me wonder a little bit. I don't know or have any particular theory on this, but is there something like this in the future for the latter temple of God? Now, we have thought, or people have thought, the church has generally thought, uh, since, well, at least the early 50s, as far as I know, that Petra and Jordan would be the place of safety. It may or may not be the case. We will wait and see. But 
realize that Petra is a national park. It's the only real tourist trap there is in the whole nation of Jordan. It is controlled by the government. It has government officials standing at the gates. And they collect the money. Why would they ever give it to a little church from America? Stop and think about that a little bit. Uh, as an equivalent, it's more like Yellowstone or Grand Canyon or Yosemite or like Zion where we're going for the feast. How could that be given by the government to private enterprise or to a non-profit organization such as the Worldwide Church of God or her daughters and the sisters that we see around us today? It would require an absolute miracle of some kind if God were to give that type of place to God's people. So perhaps the pattern here has some meaning for the future. I would not hazard to guess just how, but perhaps there is something here. It is a place prepared for her, according to Revelation 12, and she will flee there. Wherever that place is, uh, most land on the earth is controlled by governments or by private people, neither of which wants to give up their land to some kind of a strange little organization. Will someone in the church sometimes go to someone in government and say, you need to give us this? just as Moses and Aaron went and said, let my people go, let us leave here. Except in this case, maybe it'll be, let us go there, whatever. But why is it here, unless there's some meaning for today, because Isaiah itself is a prophetic book for the end time, and there are several mentions of Cyrus in the book of Isaiah. All right, let's move on. <clears throat> he makes a decree to have the house of Jerusalem built. Verse 3, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. He's basically here asking for volunteers. He's saying, who will go up? And historically speaking, a very small portion of those Jews who were in Babylon volunteered to go. Only a remnant was stirred up and went to Jerusalem to build the house of the Lord. And that's what we read in the specific prophecies of Haggai, is that only a remnant of the church of that former temple under Herbert Armstrong will come forward to build the latter temple. Most will hang back for whatever reasons, apathy, uh, disbelief, uh, whatever. But only a remnant will come. So he's calling for volunteers here. Who will come? I suppose the pool of those who are invited today will be those who have come out of this world, who put themselves in the slavery of Christ, and become eligible to be a part of the latter temple and the first fruits as a result of their conversion, whatever organization they might today be in. Who will volunteer for Haggai 1? Who will sacrifice? Who will hear and heed? Only about 10%, apparently, according to Isaiah 1.9 and various other scriptures. All right, verse, <laughs> verse 4, excuse me. And whosoever remains in any place where he sojourns, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, beside the freewill offering of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So part of the volunteering is to finance this, to get the job done. Uh, it needs volunteers, that is, bodies, uh, spiritual living stones, and it also probably will need a certain amount of of uh, finances. This has always been the case. Although God does say at some point 
those who will drink and eat come without money. I think that's in Isaiah 40, what, about, uh, no, about 54, 55, somewhere right in there. Okay, verse 5. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests, and the Levites, with all them whose spirit God had raised. God says he will stir them up in the book of, of uh, Haggai to come to Zerubbabel and Joshua, to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So perhaps at some point we may need to go where the temple is being built. Isaiah 52 is a reference I can give you. Why don't we turn back there for a moment? We used it before, but this might be a good time to, to read it again. Isaiah 52, verse 11. Depart ye, depart ye, go you out from thence, touch no unclean thing, go you out of the midst of her, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord God will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, we have always said we need to be coming mentally, emotionally, spiritually out of Babylon. And quoting Revelation 18.4, Come out of her, my people, if you be not partakers of her sin. But that's only a spiritual, mental, <laughs> mental condition. Excuse me again. What about Isaiah 52.11 through 12? Here he says, don't go with haste or go by flight. <clears throat> Where did he ever tell us to come slowly out of sin? What did he tell Israel in ancient Egypt? That they were to come out slowly? No, they were to in haste leave Egypt. So this has to be talking about something different than Matthew 24, where it says don't even go back into your house, uh, or Revelation 12, where the devil is after you, and you have to flee for your very life. I don't know how to put it together yet, except that perhaps there are some who come early and begin building uh, the latter temple, and others come later. And perhaps some, out of apathy or Laodiceanism or whatever else, don't see what God is doing. Maybe they have to come very rapidly when the major group comes. Otherwise, they get killed. So I don't know. There's something different here in Isaiah 52 from the other, talk, the other scriptures that talk about fleeing uh, very quickly. Now we'll go back to the book of Ezra. Alright, now verse 6 of chapter 1, and, they, and all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. So there's nothing done by constraint. This is a volunteer thing that God is going to do, and that is shown in Haggai where he says he stirs them up. Those who catch the vision, in other words, those who feel compelled that they need to be a part of what God is doing, and open their eyes, wake up, and get busy volunteering to do what God wants done. Chapter 7, excuse me, verse 7. Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. So when Jerusalem was sacked and the temple destroyed, they took all the valuables uh, back to Babylon, and there they were stored. Could there be a possibility that this could be in reference spiritually to God's recirculating or recycling us from Worldwide Church of God. He's not going to get all new vessels, apparently. He's going to recirculate into the new temple that which came out of the old. 
so there may be a few new ones as we'll see shortly, but mainly he'll recycle the people that were there before. All right, let's go to chapter 1, verse 11. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up with them of the captivity. They were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Um, apparently, Sheshbazar uh, is the Persian name for Zerubbabel. Speaking of the same individual, the one who is the overall leader of building the latter temple, and we don't know who is yet, but one day soon I hope that we shall. Now let's go to chapter 2. <clears throat> now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away. And then he goes ahead and names the genealogy of all of these. And historically, the vast majority, as mentioned, stayed there. And the remnant of Haggai is the parallel of those who came out of worldwide. Most will not respond, but a minority will. Verse 2, which came with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, and so on. So Zerubbabel is mentioned first as the prime personality, Joshua second, and this is the same as we see in Haggai and Zechariah among the two witnesses. And the rest of this chapter then is basically genealogy, which I don't know for sure what to do with, except that it ties with the end of the book in Nehemiah. Our pedigree is important. The majority of us were in the former temple, and now as we come to the latter temple, hopefully, uh, we need to, it will be checked as to whether or not we belong there or not, whether we're converted or not, whether or not we have the right attitude, approach, and desire or not. And this is equivalent of the, of the uh, plumb line put in Zerubbabel's and Joshua's hands uh, and measuring the altar and the people there in Revelation 11.1. 1. They went through a great deal to determine who should and who should not build in the temple. And I think that that, again, will be done. Perhaps it will be done somewhat automatically because those whom God stirs up and brings in most likelihood should be there. But there were there people in this particular instance who should not have been there. So I expect that that, again, will occur. Uh, now let's go to chapter 2, skipping down to uh, verse 62. Uh, speaking of these that came out, these sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they, as polluted, put from the priesthood. Echoing what I just said. And the Tirshatha, which the commentaries say is, means governor, and in this case probably refers to Nehemiah, said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and with Thummim. In other words, a way of determining who should and who should not be there among those that they couldn't figure out whether they really were supposed to be there or not. And perhaps that is the analogy of the plumb line that is given there in Zechariah 2 and Revelation 11 and various other places. Now to verse 68. And some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. Um, Jameson Fawson Brown made a very interesting comment here. Uh, he said essentially, before securing accommodations for themselves, they made sure provisions were made for the temple to be built, that it came first. I had not read this when I decided I will not take any salary out of what is coming in until I'm sure that there is a congregation to be built here and that it is provided for first. 
In other words, the thinking was along the same pattern as what Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua were, were determining here. I'm not saying that uh, we are that leadership. All I'm saying is it appears we're conforming to the pattern here. And I hope that we get in line with what God wants done in building the latter temple so that when it does appear, we will be part of it. But the parallels are very interesting between what uh, we're doing and what we see here in the book of Ezra, uh, Ezra, as you'll see in a moment. Now let's go to chapter 3. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem, unified in purpose, unified in their, their thinking as to why they're there and what they're doing. And we've already reviewed uh, before what our purpose is, what drew us together here, essentially the two things, understanding that the temple needs to be built and understanding that the calendar has been wrong. Now it's very interesting that they did this in the seventh month, and as you will see in just a moment, um, it was on the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets. Then stood out Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So when they had gathered, the first thing they did <coughs> was build an, an altar. Notice Joshua stands up first, ahead of Zerubbabel here, uh, though he was on the scene, uh, on the horizon. This parallels Zechariah 3 through 4, where Joshua was dealt with first. If you, as you go through Ezra, you'll find that Zerubbabel is usually mentioned first, but here Joshua was addressed first, and in a few other areas where he uh, took the lead, in this particular case probably because he was the high priest, and building an altar was a priestly thing, whereas Zerubbabel was the civil leader appointed as governor by uh, the civil authorities. Now, here's another interesting comment from uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. He says there was an immediate and urgent necessity to, number one, make atonement for their sins, to obtain divine blessings on the preparations for building the temple, to rededicate their lives to the purposes of God, namely the temple in this instance. So the altar was built, the altar representing our relationship with God and being able to come before God, the veil of the temple ripped in twain, the Holy of Holies doors being opened, and now we have that access, but our relationship with him has to be right before we can ever do anything for him. So they came together to be sure that was done. As Romans 12:1 puts it, we are to become living sacrifices. And that's what they were offering themselves to be. They gave physical sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, lambs and sheep. We present ourselves as living sacrifices. Notice verse 3. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon to the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. So there's a certain fear here that the peoples around them would not approve what they were doing, would fight them, would try to destroy what they were doing, and try to destroy them. Now the altar on its basis means that they went to the Temple Mount, they tried to determine as close as absolutely possible where the original altar had been, and where the original temple had been, um, and get it as close to the original spot as they could. And we're to do the same, as close to Bible instruction as we can, as close to Herbert Armstrong as bibli biblically we can, 
remembering all the time that the glory of the latter temple will outshine the former temple, as stated in Haggai 2, verse 9, as a specific prophecy. So we're not supposed to stray greatly from where that altar was. We're to get that back the way it should be. Herbert Armstrong said the church is off the track. Get it back on the track. And he tried, but he was weak and feeble at the end of his life, and he realized as he approached death that it was not on track. So it is our job as followers of Herbert Armstrong to follow his uh, insight, his understanding, and to do what he said to do. Get back on track. Get back to the original spot and then add what we need to from the Bible as we go. Well, they did the morning and evening sacrifices. We are to pray. Well, Daniel said morning, evening, and at morning. No. Evening, morning, and at noon, starting the day and the beginning at sunset. Now notice verse 4. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. We have determined to do the same thing. Keep the Feast of Trumpets, of course, including atonement, and then meet together at the Feast of Tabernacles. So, ironically, or coincidentally, we're following the exact same pattern that they did here, before they set out to work on the temple itself. Uh, we need to go to the Feast of Tabernacles to be sure we keep the every day according to the duty that is required on that day. Keep the proper meaning of the feasts. Not get sidetracked on the calendar or other things in a wrong way, but to concentrate on meat in due season and why we're there. Now, we did not read this ahead of time and decide we'll have our first meeting on trumpets and then we'll go to the Feast of Tabernacles. We simply determined that, and as I was reading through this later, and my jaw nearly dropped to see that we're following this pattern. may not mean anything particularly, but it feels good to be following the pattern that we see here, especially as it has pertains to the latter temple. Now, notice verse 5. This is very interesting. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated of every one that willingly offered a free will offering to the eternal. The calendar came into it immediately. They wanted to keep the seventh month, the first day, as trumpets, keep the Feast of Tabernacles, and they wanted to be sure they were doing it at the right time, according to the new moon. The set feasts of the Lord are described in Leviticus 23. There he tells us the exact days they are to be kept upon, so they were being sure that they got this done that they kept the new moons, and that the set feasts, the consecrated by God days, were kept. That is one of the areas that we're fitting the pattern again. Uh, they got themselves organized and began to keep the new moons, the calendar, and determined to keep the set feasts there ever after. Now, verse 6, From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Did they move it a day or two because they thought it might be better and they didn't like the day it was on? Or did they do it according to the new moon as stated in verse 5? So they began to do this on the first day of the seventh month, but the foundation or the building, the temple of the Lord, was not yet builded, as my margin says. It, it refers to the foundation here. It talks about the temple itself and the King James margin. So 
I don't know exactly what it means by laying the foundation, what it means by building the actual building on the foundation. Um, we've speculated off and on that Herbert Armstrong laid the foundation and built the temple, and it was torn down, and we built on that same foundation. And doctrinally speaking, I think that is essentially correct. Uh, but when does the actual foundation of the latter temple uh, get shored up, fixed, um, in, in that case, and uh, finished so that the temple can be built on it. Verse 7, They gave money also to the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil unto them of Sidon and to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa according to the grant that they, had of, that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. So they were to gather the materials. That's what they first started doing, gathering the people in the sense of the latter temple. They start coming and provision is made for that. Uh, I've been sending money to Roy Hyatt there in Dayton to provide CDs, tapes, uh, mailers, uh, stamps, uh, a duplicator, various things that we need to be sure that uh, wood can be procured because it says there in uh, Haggai 1 to go to the mountains and gather wood, gather pieces, uh, pieces and parts to build a ladder temple. That I think would equate today to people, not physical trees. And we are beginning to form a little group here that has this goal and purpose in mind and will be ready, hopefully, in preparing ourselves so that when God starts putting this whole thing together, we can be part of it. Notice in verse 8 that they gather the remnant of the brethren to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, just as in Haggai. Now let's see. Chapter 3, verse 8. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, uh, well, I already read this, but uh, it does talk about them coming together. So it's after Passover uh, that they actually begin the building once they've gathered these things and to set forward the work of the house of the Lord, uh, all those age 20 and up, showing that the age of accountability is 20, which is about what we use in terms of determining whether people are old enough to be baptized. Not their readiness, but their actual age. Um, they should be near that. Then stood Joshua with his sons and so on uh, to set forward the workmen in the house of God. So Joshua again is mentioned first here as organizing and setting this thing up to begin building. Verse 10, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. So they made sure that God was a part and parcel with this, that they weren't just building a building of their own, but that they gave obeisance, worship, and honor to God. Verse 11, they sang together. Maybe we should sing at the Feast of Tabernacles more than usual. Giving thanks to the Eternal, because he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. That reminds me of Psalm 136. His mercy endures forever. And when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now, verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men, that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and then he shouted aloud for joy. So there were still old men around who had gone into captivity at the time of the destruction of the temple, at the, at the beginning of that captivity and the sacking of Jerusalem. They had come back, or were still there, perhaps a few of them, from Babylon and saw the building of the new temple. Now this is mentioned in Haggai 
showing a specific prophecy, in this case, not just a historical comparison, but a specific prophecy that there will be old men around who can compare the old or the former temple with the latter temple. Again, Haggai being an end-time book. So both temples are in the end time, and there will be people old enough to have seen both, both worldwide at the height of its glory and the new temple as it is finished as well, and that the glory of the latter will far supersede that of the former. So what God is about to begin building is going to be incredible. He will sift out the tares. He will sift out the rebels and purge them. still wonder, and I'm almost convinced that Stan Rader probably got together with those Jewish Edomite uh, judges in California and had them take over and expected the profit out of it, along with them getting some profits themselves. That's my opinion. I'm not trying to libel anybody, but it makes you wonder. And then when you read something like this, you realize that enemies came in the former temple, and they will come in the latter temple as well. Notice verse 12. Be it known to the king that the Jews which came up from you to us are come to Jerusalem, building the rebellious and the bad city, and have set up walls thereof, and joined the foundations. There will be people who come and try to have God's church destroyed. Satan knows who God's people are. He knows where God's temple is. He knows where God's latter temple will be built. He knows who will be there, ultimately. And he hates it. So there's trouble ahead for any who would build. And they call the church a rebellious and a bad city, just like they called ancient Jerusalem that. So we will be, if we're part of this, branded rebellious and spiritually bad by our detractors, perhaps in the church and out of the church, for that matter. I have a quote here. I think I'll read to you at this moment. Quote, refusing to accept the earth as our sacred mother, these Christians have become a dangerous threat to the survival of humanity. They are a blight on the environment, and to believe in Bible prophecy is excuse me, unforgivable. Guess who apparently wrote this? It was sent to me as a quote from Vice President Al Gore in his book, Earth in Balance, page 342. I've not checked it out but I've heard that he worships Gaia, Mother Earth, from several different sources. Now, do you think there are going to be enemies coming against those who would do God's will, who are true Christians as opposed to just Protestants? Certainly will be branded as a rebellious and bad city. Uh, verse, or chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Now, wait a minute, I... I'm in the wrong chapter there. Uh, verse 21, excuse me, of, cha of chapter 4. Give you now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that this city be not builded, until another commandment shall be given from me. So these people were able to convince Cyrus that maybe this shouldn't be going on. Uh, chapter, verse 23 now, uh, last of it. And it made them to cease by force and power. Verse 24, then cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, so it ceased into the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This cessation of labor on the temple was for 14 years. 
I don't know whether it means anything or not, but it's been 14 years now since the death of Herbert Armstrong. He died in 1986, and here we are in the year 2000, 14 years later. Is it now time to build the latter temple to get started? I don't know that. Like I say, the, the times, the days, the dates, the years may not be the same in the historical record here as they are in the latter fulfillment of this in the specific prophecies of Haggai and, Zer of, and Zechariah, but it's possible. Just a passing thought. Now Haggai picks up the story in the second year of Darius right here. Uh, when there had been a cessation of work, and Haggai upbraids us for pursuing our own lives, our jobs, our careers, our desires, our desires, our hobbies, building ourselves houses. And he says we need to be willing to give up our fine paneled houses and come and build his house to get our emphasis on what he is doing, not what we want to do. And since Herbert Armstrong, many of us have followed this same pattern. We're paying little attention to the church of God. And on another level, we've built many church houses that God will ultimately tear down, as he says again in Isaiah 5 and Zechariah 11. Now that is one of the main reasons that I personally have not been quick to establish yet another organization. I want to be part of the latter temple and to help build it. But we don't know exactly how this will come about. Meanwhile, maybe we can, as a congregation coming together, understanding what needs to be done, help prepare ourselves and others as some of the living stones to go into it. We need to conform to the pattern of what we see in Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah so that we're prepared to be a part when God raises up the leadership and we'll know to go there. Now, chapter 5. Then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even to them. Then rose up Zerubbabel and Joshua and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. So these men, Zerubbabel and Joshua, had been there at the beginning. They were there during the cessation of labor. Uh, so I assume that the leadership of building the latter temple will probably come from somewhere within the original worldwide church of God. And that there will be other ministers and elders and people to come and help once it's discerned where that is going to occur. At the same time came to them Katnai, gov Kat governor on this side of the river, and Shethiar Bozni and their companions, and said thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? I would say the pattern is here that when someone says, let's build a ladder temple, let's get involved with what Haggai and Zechariah tell us to do, um, authority for doing so will be questioned. Who are you? Where do you get such authority? Where do you get off? Well, notice verse 5, But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that they could not cause them to cease. So once that building actually began, God would provide the protection. Uh, you could tie in Zechariah 2 there about Christ becoming a wall of fire around uh, so that no one could intervene and, and nothing could stop it. So don't fear. God will dismay the enemies. Isaiah constantly says through the 40s and so on there, 44, 45, fear not, be of good courage. And Haggai echoes that several times. Now, chapter 5, verse 8. Be it known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God, which is built with great stones, and timber is laid in the walls, and this work goes fast on and prospers in their hands. So they went to the king and said, they're getting this thing done. 
Then asked we those elders and said to them thus, Who commanded you to build this house and to make up these walls? Comes again. I think their response is very interesting here. We might tie in before that, Genesis 28:19, uh, where it refers to Bethel as the house of God. Acts 7:38 calls Israel a congregation in the wilderness. And the term church is not a correct definition of the word, Greek word ekklesia or ecclesia in the New Testament. Um, it means assembly, congregation, or called out once. Now, this we've understood for decades, and Mr. Armstrong often said it. In fact, I was in Dallas with the group there a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we played a Herbert Armstrong tape for the sermonette, and he pointed out that uh, church is not the correct word, that it means assembly or congregation. So when Paul referred to the congregation of God at Philippi, that was the word he was using, assembly of God at Philippi, or the congregation of God at Philippi, not the church. And there's even some speculation in books that I've read that church is derived from sun worship and is not a part of what we should use at all. So be that as it may, I don't know if we can prove that, but the real word, if you look up the definition, does not include church. Okay, now let's see, verse uh, 9. Then asked me those elders and said to them, Who commanded you to do this? Oh, okay, we were getting to the answer on that. Verse 11. And thus they returned us answer, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and build a house that was built at these many years ago, which a great king of Israel built it and set up. But after that our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them unto the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So God had used a great king, Solomon, to build a temple, it was torn down because of their sins. Now, Herbert Armstrong, whom I think is used as a reference uh, as a great king here at the end, also built a former temple, had beautiful buildings. It was great. But we provoked the father of our uh, God in heaven. And then when Herbert Armstrong died, that was torn down. And now it has to be rebuilt. We've had this scattering in the church. We've been carried away into Babylon by the Tkachas and others, as far as I'm concerned. Notice they didn't say, well, we have such and such a title. We are important, or we are apostles or leading evangelists, or whatever. They just said, we are the servants of the Most High God of heaven and earth. That's all the authority they needed. That's all the authority we need to serve God and follow Him and obey Him to do what his book says. Now 5 verse 14, The vessels also of gold and silver of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that was in Jerusalem, and brought them into the temple of Babylon. Those did Cyrus the king take out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, or Zerubbabel, whom he had made governor. So the same people again uh, being recycled. And said to them, Take these vessels, go, carry them into the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be builded in his place. Then came the same Sheshbazar and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now Zechariah 4 clearly says that Zerubbabel laid the foundation, so um, Sheshbazar is apparently the correct Persian name for Zerubbabel. Now the church is Jerusalem. Read Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. We've referred to it many times. Zion, Jerusalem, 
or all the church, and can be referred to as such in the Old Testament prophecies. So, God is going to cause his church to be built in its place, and Zerubbabel laying the foundation. Now, notice chapter, uh, or notice, let's see, what verse do I want here? Oh, verse 4. Uh, 5 at the end says, Let the foundations there be strongly laid, so this has to be built right. Verse 4, With three rows of great stones and a row of new timber. That's where I made the earlier comment that maybe there will be some new people, not all recycles in the latter temple, because there are three rows of great stones, living stones in our case, and a row of new timber. Just a thought. don't know whether that means there will be some new people or not, but possibly so. Uh, verse 7, Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. So the obstacles and the enemies will be removed, and it will get done. Now notice verse uh, 8. Moreover, I make a decree, what ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river. Forthwith, expenses be given to these men, that they be not hindered. And that which they have need of, both young bullocks and rams and lambs, for the burnt offerings of the house of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without faith. So God is going to see to it through some way. I don't know whether it will be a civil governor such as Cyrus or whether God will do a different way, but provision will be made. And I think we can pray, give us this day our daily bread. And God is going to take care of those who work in his temple. However this happens and exactly in what manner, I do not know, but certainly the pattern is here and someone will do it. That they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors unto the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and of his sons. Now notice. Also I have made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word let timber be pulled down from his house and being set up or that is stood up let him be hanged thereon and let his house be made a dunghill for this. And the God that has caused his name to dwell there destroy all kings and people that shall put to their hand to the altar and to destroy this house of God which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree. Let it be done with speed. So we need to be very, very careful that if someone starts building the latter temple, we don't try to hinder that, stop that, get in the way of that, ridicule that, or cause it to cease in any way. I think this can be tied together since we're talking about the latter temple and the two witnesses here. Fire eventually proceeds from the mouth of, of their mouths for any who will hinder or harm or try to kill them, as per Revelation 11. So the pattern is set back here, and God emphasizes the specifics of it in the prophecies themselves, including the book of Revelation. Notice verse 14. And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Several people got involved in this, and God made sure that it got done. Verse 15, And this house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So you'll recall it started on the in the second year of Darius when Haggai made uh, the statement. 
and it was finished approximately four years later, once the foundation was established and the building actually began. Adar is the twelfth month of the year, so uh, that puts the completion of the temple just before Passover time. Verse 16, And the children of Israel, the priests, and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. It was once built, it was dedicated to God as his building, as his temple, and they offered uh, all kinds of offerings there and sacrifices according to the number of the tribes of Israel in verse 17. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So they restored proper worship in this temple. And that has to be the key. We be the temple of God, and Paul said, whose temple you are, your body's the temple of God's spirit. We have to restore proper worship, proper order, proper zeal, proper interest to get rid of Laodiceanism and become zealous once again and on fire, excited about what God is doing, excited about marrying Christ when he returns very shortly to this earth. So they got organized by tribes, and that's what God does with the first fruits. There are exactly 144 of them, 44,000 of them, excuse me, and the 12 apostles are put over the tribes, 12,000 each, and it is properly organized as the government that will then rule the world during the millennium. So today is not about those people who will come up in a different order of resurrection. It's about us. It's about those of us who have the possibility of being in that first resurrection as part of the 144,000, as part of God's temple, part of the bride of Christ, part of the first fruits, whichever analogy you want to use at a particular time. So once it's finished, once this is done, Christ will return and we can go to work on the rest of the world. 6.19 And the children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the 14th day of the first month. So immediately after the temple is finished, it was Passover time. Whether that pattern will be repeated, I do not know. That's just what has historically happened here. Verse 21 and the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity, and all such as had separated themselves to them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land, to seek the Lord of God, the Lord God of Israel, did eat, and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful, and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So they finished the job, but they separated themselves out. Isaiah 52.1 tells us to put on our white garments, the garments of righteousness. We are told a little later in that chapter, which we've already read today, uh, to be clean, to bear the vessels of the eternal. Uh, Haggai 2 talks about the priests making a difference between the clean and the unclean, and that we can't touch that which is unclean. For God tells us that we are to be separate, that we are to be holy, that we are to be different. I'm not going to... Uh, pursue that line of thought because that more is more now for the Day of Atonement which is coming up very shortly but I want to stop this today on the note that we are to be separated from this world and that the Feast of, Tra of Trumpets then pictures the completed bride wearing absolutely white clothes cleansed and prepared <laughs> or again the final number of the first fruits the 144,000 ready for the picking sweet, tasty, ripe Delicious. That's what God is looking for in the first fruits. He's not looking for naughty, gnarled, 
rotten at the core, uh, sarcastic, cynical, turned off, tuned out people. He's looking for his first fruits to be that which he would go to the tree and search through and pluck the ripest, the best, the perfect, that is, the mature. Not that we'll ever become absolutely perfect in thought and mind in this human frame, but right, mature, ready, and prepared for the first resurrection and or our change, whichever the case might be with us as individuals. So that is the main job we are called today to accomplish, to prepare ourselves as living sacrifices, as living stones for the temple, as per Romans 12.1, shaped and polished and ready to fit in place wherever God wants to use us. And as Paul says in that context, this is our reasonable service. So looking to the Feast of Trumpets as the fulfillment of our dreams, brethren, to actually, literally rise in the air to meet our King, our Lord and Maker, our brother, our husband, on a day pictured by the Feast of Trumpets.